I didn't go there to document. I just go around and say, oh, something interesting, click. And it reminds me of a scene from Indiana Jones where the French archaeologist says that if he buries a watch in the sand, which is worthless uh, watch that doesn't work, but buried in the sand a thousand years later, it'll be worth millions. And I see when I took pictures of Chinatown, it didn't really matter much because it was there. It was common. In other words, people taking pictures today. And you can see people taking lots of pictures with their smartphones. And I wish that they, instead of deleting them, keep them around, store it, because who knows? Years from now, it could mean something. Hi, it's me again. My name is Nina Zhou. You're listening to the Chinatown Memory Podcast. I hope to bring you voices from the interviews collected from my oral history master of arts thesis, which I'm exploring different aspects of Chinese Canadian history and life experience. The project features intergenerational voices from stories behind the Toronto Chinatown. In this episode, we have Jack Siddle, who is trained as a photographer. He has captured numerous photos in his life, including a large collection of Toronto Chinatown photos since 1970s. A photo is a printed memory of a moment in time that carries with an entire word of thoughts, stories, and emotions. And to Jack, this is especially resonating and meaningful. You'll find out where his passion for photography came from by listening to his life stories as a Chinese-Canadian. My name is Jack Zito. My father came here in 1921, paid the head tax of $500, and he landed in Vancouver. He was about 13 years old. And the story goes that he put his destination as going to Niagara Falls, Ontario. So between Vancouver and Niagara Falls, it's a long journey. And the family myth or story is that he had a cardboard necklace, sort of like a cardboard sign, you know, like attached to a rope and wrapped around his neck. And, uh, and it says Niagara Falls. And it takes six days to go from Vancouver to Niagara Falls. And so what he did was he had six days of egg salad sandwich with him. And he ate one sandwich per day before reaching Niagara Falls. I don't know if who's at the other end at Niagara Falls, relatives or uh, friends of the family, I'm not sure. So, but the other story, which because of the, uh, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, I'd be able to, you know, like talk to people over the phone. And I found out that my grandfather was here before my father. I hear stories that, first of all, in the 1890s, he was in San Francisco trying to enlist in the US Navy, but got rejected because he was Asian. That's one story. The other story is that he was working in Ontario 
for CPR, which is the Canadian Pacific Railway. I'm not too sure in what capacity, but in 1941, he received a gold watch for 25 years of service and he retired. So he decided to go back to China, to his village, and basically live the happy days of his life. So what happened was he, you know, I guess since he was working in Toronto, he got a plane from Toronto to Hong Kong in 1941. The day that he landed in Hong Kong was the day that the Japanese invaded Hong Kong. And he was killed with also, you know, the plane load of passengers and crew by the Japanese. So those are the things that you find out during the pandemic. And because, you know, like we weren't too sure what was going on with all the stories, whether or not they're true or not, there's different versions and, you know, depending on the bias and everything else, you know, like, I don't want to say yay or nay or you're wrong, you're, you're right. So I just, you know, know the stories that I have with my generation and my family. And because we're a family that's experienced the immigration situation, because of the ban of immigration between uh, the head tax and after the World War II, which is Chinese Exclusion Act. My sister who was born in China is 19 years older than me. She passed about 15 years ago. And my mother, when she arrived in Canada, she had me when she was in her mid forties, which was kind of incredible back then in the 1950s. And she lived to be over 90. And we're not even sure, you know, like what her age is. And same thing with my father and my sister, because they all go by the lunar calendar. And sometimes they pick a year and say, you know, this looks good. The thing is, I don't have that information. So that's why I said, everything is sort of like a blank page. And I tried to fill in the blanks. Jack was born in Brampton, Ontario, and had lived there until he was six years old. It was a small town, about 40 minutes drive on the highway from Toronto. Jack's father established his restaurant business there from 1952 to approximately 1962. It's one of those places where it's basically a restaurant. It's not like a cafe as in Starbucks today. You get served, like let's say, breakfast, uh, brunch type of meals, to steak and uh, potatoes, and also the North American version of Chinese food, which is the chop suey. But the, most of the food orders are for your regular North American, uh, you know, like steak and, you know, like mashed potatoes and, and things like that. So one of the things is that there's only maybe a handful of Chinese restaurants there. And I remember growing up there, we lived upstairs of the, uh, the restaurant. So in other words, the restaurant was downstairs, you know, like our living quarters are upstairs. So basically I was by myself most of the time. The television set was my babysitter. 
And that's where I learned a lot of uh, things about pop culture, the programs that are on there and, and things like this. And I have no idea whether or not there's any discrimination or prejudice or anything like that. Uh, I think that for the majority of my growing up, I was quite shielded from those elements. So in a way it's a blessing, but at the same time, you know, I was unaware of the realities of uh, the Chinese in Canada. And one of the things is that we moved from Brampton to Scarborough and then from Scarborough to Toronto. And it wasn't until when, in, when we moved to Toronto and I was in grade three that I found out that about prejudice. So I got teased for being Chinese. Uh, there was a nursery rhyme that was said to me and you know they were all making fun of me doing the, uh, the motions with the, uh, the eyes being slanted and everything else. And so it was kind of different because all the rest of the time I was accepted or people were colorblind. And so it was kind of, you know, like I, I kind of shook it off afterwards. So for the most part during high school, I hanged around with a lot of Chinese students uh, some came from Hong Kong, some from places like China and everything else, like, or Taiwan. At first, there was a lot of people from Hong Kong, and there was one person from Taiwan. And at that time, like, it's very rare to, to hear somebody who speaks Mandarin. So it was quite unusual. And growing up in Chinatown, because we were a little bit away from Chinatown, we always go there either to get Chinese vegetables or Chinese food, and also at the same time to remember when we used to uh, live in Brampton, uh, when I was much younger, my father would drive into Chinatown and he would pick up the usual Chinese goods, you know, like from food to medicine to whatever, but he always goes to the post office there and what he usually does is in those letters, he would send money to the village uh, to support, uh, let's say, the extended family down there. It, it was always something, you know, like, and you got to look at the, when you're a kid and you're about five, you know, six or seven years old, and you're only so high, and you're always looking up, and you're always seeing all these goods, like, in sort of like barrels, and, and you see these ginger and you see the, uh, the dry goods and you see the Chinese medicine all in jars and everything else. Very high up in the shelves and everything else. Uh, mind you, you've got the glass, you know, like display cases there that are in the way. So you can only see part of it. And it's always intrigues me because the thing is, you, like you see these like uh, dead snakes, preserved snakes and and shrimp and all these <laughs> seahorses and all things. And you wonder, I don't see those in my food. <laughs> so I wonder what they're used for. And the thing is, of course, you know, like I wouldn't think, think of, a, uh, of it when my mother makes these soup and said, it's good for you. Not knowing that those are the ingredients that go into those soup. So it, it's one of the things that Going back to high school was 
I don't know why, but I just gravitate hanging around with more Chinese students, more Asian students, because it felt natural. And I, I think I, I just, I can't explain it, but it's just, you know, comfortable. It's felt like home. And even though there's a language barrier, because these are mostly new immigrants and things like this, and they would hang around with me as well because I would converse with them in English and get them more comfortable speaking in English. So it's a two-way street. And they would teach me about uh, the various things about uh, you know, like the Hong Kong pop culture back then. They would talk to me or let me listen to some of the music they used to listen to, like uh, Teresa Tang or Sam Hoi or you know, all those stars from you know, like the 1970s. So, and back then they used to have parties and that was exposure to the social visit gatherings where we go into somebody's house in the basement and they have a record player and usually stacks of 45s and, and plays one at a time. And it, it became sort of like the norm, like there's parties almost every week. Okay, once a month, <laughs> but it seems like every week. We, we didn't really drink any alcohol because it basically was a social uh, gathering to get away from school and, and social pressures. And, and and we were all innocent and everything else. So we didn't really do anything much. There were the Chinese student associations in the high schools, but I didn't join them because they basically spoke in Chinese or, or at that time Cantonese. And because I speak Tuisong, it's very hard for them to understand me and I'll only pick out a few words. So again, that's the time when I hang around with my other groups. <laughs> in other words, the mainstream group of uh, friends. So in other words, there's various circles that I have. And because of the, the parties that I went to during high school, you know, like, because they were getting bigger and you know, like they went from somebody's basement to, you know, people just renting halls. So it grew from maybe 25 people in a basement to about maybe a hundred. So when I went to Ryerson University, back then it wasn't a university, it was called a Polytechnic Institute. And so I joined the Ryerson Chinese Student Association and we decided to, you know, like just, you know, try to have a good time, get people comfortable. There was no talk about the prejudice or discrimination because the thing is, I think everybody w didn't want to hear that. They need time to escape. So I wasn't into the, the advocacy or, or the being, you know, like an advocate for, you know, like against racism or, or things like that. So. Uh, that time, that wasn't the time. The transition didn't take place until after Jack finished university. He saw a documentary on television, which was about Gold Mountain and the Chinese workers building the Pacific Railroad. So talking about the struggles and the abuses of uh, the Chinese and the lives that were lost 
and forgotten blew my mind. And uh, it wasn't until I met the person who did the documentary that she asked me to volunteer with the Chinese Canadian National Council. It was in the early 1980s. And still at that time, I wasn't feeling the need, I guess because I was shielded from the prejudice and, and you know, like the discrimination. Like there were other people in the, the organization that was advocating against racism and very seeing need. And that, which is great, but at the same time, the organization was relying on government, uh, let's say grants from the, the multiculturalism uh, department. And the thing is, I see that always relying on government grants, then we're sort of like being part of the government arm of distributing. Well, it's, it's in other words, we're, we're doing their service as opposed to doing ourselves. So. I'm sort of like part of the area of fundraising and marketing and doing sort of like the lighter side because the thing is that if you advocate harshly and say this is controversy and everything else, there are people that will gravitate to that, but there are some that don't want any part of it. So I'm just hitting the people that aren't part of it. So whenever we have those parties, we would always have a like a a booth that has the brochures, the literature, you know, like talking about the organizations about and talking about equity and, and equality and, and, and all these things. And also I'd say after I finished my term with the Chinese Canadian National Council, I got volunteered, I volunteered, but they kind of pushed me into a, a help with a, a magazine called Asian Indian which was founded by a scholar called Tony Chan. And he did some books about uh, Chinatowns. And the thing was that the magazine was ahead of its time in the late 1970s and early 80s, talking about issues about, not only about racism, but also gender issues, let's say mental health issues, women issues, all these issues that were kind of taboo. One of the things that they asked me to do was to do the, the youth and getting their point of view, where they are at and how they fit in into the society. So me and another person, uh, Christine Pinto, interviewed various East, Southeast Asians as well as South Asians and talking about the pressures they live in. It, it's sort of like being in between. And one of the things that uh, also, if I could digress, is one of the things that I was first ex exposed to in terms of talking about being in both worlds. It was when I was in high school, Jean Lung somehow saw me and asked me to be part of a panel talking about, you know, being a high school student and, you know, being in between both worlds and being Chinese in a, in a white uh, country, going back and forth. And, and whether or not uh, the pressures and, and the survival and whether or not it, it's, you know, and, and making other students say, yes, I've, I felt that. And so they're not alone because we're all feeling that isolation, but also at the same time, we're sort of like wondering, 
when I was growing up and watching television, I see, you know, like looking out for Asian faces. And the only ones are either ones that are servants or villains. So in other words, you got uh, a coolie called Hop Singh who was helping, who works for a Western, a cowboy Western family. And he was helping with the cooking and everything else. And another one was the movies that you see uh, on television, like The World of Susie Wong, starring Nancy Kwan. And that was the only time when I'd be able to see images of Hong Kong because I didn't know what it was like. But actually, soon afterwards, I did go to Hong Kong when I was about six or seven years old. And it was strange because I don't have very much memories of it, but it was similar to what it is in the world of Nancy Wong and also in the recent movie called In the Mood for Love. It's it, very similar, especially during the monsoon rains and everything else. And I remember being like, a, when I was went to Hong Kong, I was kind of chunky. In other words, I was heavy set. I was a little bit round. And because I, my food diet was basically Canadian, like hot dogs and hamburgers and things like this. And because I didn't really eat the authentic food, it was a culture shock for me in Hong Kong. So I, I couldn't eat, I lost weight. And in order for, uh, let's say my mother to get me to eat something, to have something in my, uh, in, in my stomach. So what she did was she got a bun and basically hollowed it out and put Chinese sausage in it and said it's a hot dog. So that was my diet in Hong Kong <laughs> because there were no McDonald's, none of those North American fast food. I think it was 1961 or 62. So in that sense, it was kind of culture shock for me. And I remember sleeping in these uh, beds that are basically almost wood. And they have this mosquito nets that are draped over. And I remember also going to the marketplace and it was very crowded. And when you're a little kid, all you do is bumping, bumping your nose into other people's behind because it was that crowded. And my thinking was, and this is a theory, being a, a six or seven year old, uh, because the thing is, you know, with a little bit over imagination, my thinking was that because I constantly bumped my nose against other people's behind, that because of that, that's why Chinese people have flat noses. So it, it was one of those little things that I, my imagination, because the thing is, my nose was not, <laughs> it's a little bit more pointy. So in other words, they were saying, you're not Chinese. And I guess it's because I don't hang around the marketplace enough to get my nose uh, let's say, butt it in. It's one of those funny things. And also, you know, like just going through, uh, talking about Chinatown, how it changed over the years. Chinatown was, when I 
we moved to Toronto. Chinatown was basically around from Bay and Dundas to let's say just before the university. So in other words, it's just a couple of blocks and the new city hall was just built. It was kind of you know, like a few restaurants, a couple of supermarkets, uh, which are basically the size of convenience stores back then. But it was almost like a small village because when I went there, everybody seems to know each other. And I would walk by and, you know, like some of the owners of various stores or restaurants would wave back and say your name because you're, you're the son of whoever or, or relative of whoever. So it was, it was almost like home. And it was one of those ways where, you know, back then it was a lot of people sp spoke my dialect, but it wasn't until the late sixties where second wave of Chinese immigrants came from Hong Kong. And, you know, that coincide with the expansion or not expansion, but let's say Chinatown being moved over west towards Spadina. Uh, some, because it was forced to, because the city politicians were trying to make more space for their own uses. I remember Espadina and Dundas, right at the corner where there, right now there is a, a drugstore, but next to that there used to be a movie theater. And in that movie theater used to be called the Golden Harvest Theater. And that was where I first uh, watched my Bruce Lee movies. So my first exposure to that. And during that time in the uh, late seventies, uh, or, or I should say, the mid seventies, there was sort of like what you call the ethnic nationalism. In other words, some of my high school friends saw that as a way of getting back for all the, the racism that they encountered, which I never knew. So they would have, you know, like pick fights or gangs, you know, like against uh, other ethnic groups. Uh, it's sort of like a vindication or or revenge or, or whatever. And at one point I was told that not to have any white friends and should only stick with Chinese friends. It was one of those moments where it's one thing to be what the movies can teach you, but at the same time, it also uh, changes your behavior towards other people. So I saw the power of, of the media. Now you've heard of Jack's stories. Perhaps at this point, you're wondering why he ended up in photography. And there were a couple of reasons. So why I gravitate to photography is a mystery to me because I was told that to work in a restaurant, be a manager, run a restaurant, and that's your, your life. Uh, I didn't want to get into that mode. And I was grasping at something I was not your typical, stereotypical Chinese Canadian. In other words, I don't gravitate to being an accountant, a doctor, or engineer, or science. Our family has been involved with the restaurant business for a long time. And growing up, before my father passed away, when I was about eight years old, uh, he would try to say, you know, forget about your Chinese heritage just learned English because the thinking of that generation was that 
if you know enough English and become Canadianized, then you could go far and high in your career. So in other words, you won't be stuck in the ghettoized world of working in restaurants or, or in laundry. So that's his thinking of getting out of the, the ghetto. So, and that's why I have very little knowledge of the language and, the, and where I came from. And the stories that I, I ask about things about the family history and everything else, and they would laugh or, or say it's not important or anything like this, either because of traumatic experiences when the Japanese invaded uh, China or uh, because of the civil wars between the nationalists and the communists. There could be many situations. You know, and also at the same time, in the village, there was like a lot of famine and droughts and people live in poverty. So it was not a good life to sort of remember things by. So they were just, you know, grateful for being in Canada. So I could understand that. And also the family was also um, very superstitious. So talking about the past, especially when the past is bad, it is bad luck. And somehow photography, you know, and I just had a camera for maybe just under a year. And I decided, okay, I'd kind of like this. And I had a 35 millimeter uh, single lens reflex SLR and was playing around with it. So I applied to Ryerson and it was the only university that, at the time that gives degree for photography. There were other places like in Vancouver and Rochester, New York and New York City that has photography courses. With Ryerson being so close, I went for it. So having no knowledge besides taking, you know, like your usual candid uh, photographs of family and friends, I decided to just go around the city and taking pictures. And so I sent my applications into Ryerson and they said, come in for an interview. And you had to be interviewed before being admitted to the program. So in the lineup of the, you know, for the interview, there were about a couple of people behind me, a couple of people before me. And they all have portfolios, you know, like about maybe 16 by 20. They all have sophisticated cameras that are about, let's say, a foot and a half wide, uh, the ones that you put the, the black cloth over your head. They know how to develop film. They have their own dark room. They'll be able to print color. I took mine to a photo finisher and got these little three by five images. And I showed my stuff and they said, thank you, you're on a waiting list. So I didn't get in. I decided I don't want to go back to the restaurant. So I decided to take a general arts and science course at Humber College. And I was there for a couple of weeks and I said, this is not good because the commute is terrible. And so what I did was I phoned every day to Ryerson to see because I was on a waiting list to see if anybody canceled. And after two weeks of pestering them, because I phoned in the morning and I phoned in the afternoon and I got in. So, and once 
uh, I got in, it was interesting because everybody was well-versed in photography. Some of them even had their own company. And here I am, just fresh, you know, like have no knowledge. And after four years, or after a couple of years, I started, you know, like learning and try to be as much of a sponge and getting all the knowledge that I can. But at the same time, because I was supporting my family because both my father and I was living with my sister and brother-in-law and my brother-in-law passed. So I was supporting the family. So in other words, all my photography money from grants and OSAP goes to pay for the bills. So I didn't have any money for new photography equipment. Uh, I had the makeshift uh, dark room in the laundry room. You know, I couldn't buy studio lights. I couldn't rent a studio. So everything was whatever I have, I could do, you know, make do with. So it wasn't until after I finished Ryerson, and during Ryerson, I was doing mostly fashion photography because um, at Ryerson, there was a fashion design students or fashion design course. So we did sort of like a portfolio exchange. In other words, I do pictures of their designs and it's for their work, for their assignments, and vice versa. I do it for my assignments. And so it works out that way. And all through the time at Ryerson, I was uh, doing a lot of people shop. And I was sort of like what you call a city boy. In other words, I was basically more in tune with people and have no uh, inkling or, or motivation to go into nature. It wasn't until after I got married, after I have kids, and after working in the photography company, I was basically in the office doing administration. So it wasn't until I got laid off that I finally decided, what can I do? I was 58, and every time I applied for a job or go for an interview, there were, let's say, a room full of young people, about 20, 25 years younger than me. And chances for me to get in inside them are almost nil. So I decided to just enjoy the retirement. And in a sense, I don't like the word retirement because if you break down the word retire, means that you're tired again. So I thought, call it reactive. So I decided to go for walks and I decided to, you know, I go into the parks, I go, and I notice some interesting things. So I decide to take pictures of the, you know, something natural settings. And it grew, and I got my groove back because the thing is that for the longest time, I didn't want to touch the camera because at that time, I had a feeling that it didn't bring me the fame and fortune that I wanted. So I had to sort of like, do something else. And now, you know, like I'm finding more contentment as a, uh, when doing the photography. And you can see that in the images that I failed to click on because I see things differently. Like some people just take a pictures of places and it's basically content. In other words, there's a waterfall or there's, uh, let's say, birds or whatever. 
is one thing to catalog things, but I wanted to see it through a different perspective. And unfortunately, my timing for this type of photography and what I do and people liking it, it is ill-timed because in today's market, photography is not as what it was back in 1980s and 1990s because of the internet, there is image collect. If you go into Google images, you can see thousands of images there. You could go to Flickr, you could see so many images. So in other words, what uh, image would be worth in the 1980s, let's say a thousand dollars today, pennies or even free. So it's bad timing, but you know, at least I know that for me, I know that on this journey, I could do photography and that was more meaningful to me. Among the photos he has taken, there are many about the Toronto Chinatown captured decades ago. And you will see the place was much livelier than it is today. In Jack's words, it's only a glimpse of life that once was. The photographs remind him of a time when Chinatown was a happening place, which had a soul. It's just by coincidence. I, I didn't go there to document. I just go around and say, oh, it's something interesting, click. And it reminds me of a, a scene from Indiana Jones, where the French archaeologist says that if he buries a watch in the sand, which is worthless uh, watch that doesn't work, but bury it in the sand, a thousand years later, it'll be worth millions. And I see when I took pictures of Chinatown, it didn't really matter much because it was there, it was common. In other words, people taking pictures today, and you can see people taking lots of pictures with their smartphones. And I wish that they, instead of deleting them, keep them around, store it, because who knows? Years from now, it could mean something. It was a community and you wonder whether or not, uh, you know, looking back and then looking today and forward and say, will Chinatown be around? But then what's the definition of Chinatown? And whether or not, you know, with other centers like in Markham and Richmond Hill and Scarborough, whether or not that is the new way of, of being in Chinatown. So in other words, times have changed, but whether or not, you know, we need to keep the change from, keep the time from changing or let it change. So that's why sometimes when you're talking about, because Toronto doesn't have a Chinese, a Chinatown cultural center or a Chinese cultural center, whether or not we have to talk about whether or not, you know, is there a need for it? And also, is it sustainable? And so those are the questions and those are the conversations we need to talk about now. Because the thing is, 20 years from now, whether is Chinatown going to be the same or they're going to be just basically a retail mall, a retail shopping mall, like the Pacific Mall. So that's the conversation and whether or not because of the internet where we're working remotely and, and talking remotely by Zoom and everything else, uh, the sense of community will be changed. So the, the evolution of 
interactions and having a coffee and or or going for family outings and, and social gatherings will be different in the future. How will that evolve? So those are the kinds of things, issues that need to be discussed because in other words, if we're going to spend all the capital and all the effort for, you know, like a cultural center, it has to evolve as well. So in other words, it has to pivot very quickly or else it's going to be an empty uh, building and you have to sell it to a developer to make it into a condo. There's the Chinese Canadian Archive, which is in the Toronto Reference Library. And I haven't been inside it, so I would like to see it. But because of COVID, I can't. And because of COVID, I've been scanning a lot of family pictures. And most of those family pictures that I recently scanned need verification because I'm still trying to find out. Because what happened was, for 35 mil, you get like a strip of film and you got maybe five exposures or five pictures. And the thing was, sometimes in, in a single row, you get maybe one picture was taken yesterday, one picture was taken last week, another picture was taken last month. So you're trying to find out the timeline. The family pictures that I have were from the 1950s. And back then, they don't have rolls. They cut up the, the negatives one image at a time. So in other words, I got one negative for one picture. And it's just like if you have different, uh, like what you call playing cards, and you throw up your cards up in the air and they all landed. No order and no dates. So basically, I'm guessing at the years, there's also, I'm looking at how people dress. So in other words, if it's the same clothing, it must be on the same date and looking at the weather and everything else. So it's all that and trying to, you know, like decipher. So, and also at the same time, there's a lot of emotions going through when looking at old photographs, because when you look at your family photographs, you know, from the past, you know, you, you think of, different, your mind gets wander around and sometimes you wonder what if, and those are the what ifs are the, the main things that drives your emotions. Because what if that person thing, let's say, uh, turned right and went into a car accident? Or what if this person didn't leave China? You know, would we be, you know, like what would, what would my life be? You know, during this pandemic, a couple of things that came up to me. One was, I, I was thinking of every time we go to the cemetery to pay our respects to our ancestors. And we do the incense and we bow the three times and everything else. But I looked around at the, the surrounding tombstones and you see the, the photographs, like the, the little plaque that's on the tombstones. And you look at those faces and you see their names and you see the in English, I don't know about the Chinese that has more uh, description about their village or where they're from and things like this, but in English, 
is basically the name, the dates, you know, like birth and, and death. And, you know, either sometimes mother of or son of or, or whatever, and that's it. And you wonder the stories that have been untold of all these people, the hardships, the sacrifices that they go uh, through in settling into a foreign country, a, a culture that is, doesn't make sense to them and the sacrifices that they have to go through. And one person told me that, you know, like when it's time for us to be gone, will they remember us? Will they think about us? Like they say, you know, like in 20 years time, maybe 30 years time after that, nobody will remember us. And I thought that is a, such a, a sad thought. And, you know, like the stories, the sacrifices, how we be able to get the next generation to where it is now. And we're passing the torch to the next generation to carry on our struggles. And, you know, sometimes we not, may not be successful, but we can be successful through them, through the next generation. So I think that, you know, one of the things is that remembering and memories is what makes us human and also motivates us to carry on because if we don't remember yesterday, how can we go for tomorrow? One last thing for this episode I would like to share. There was one story that reinforced Jack's idea about importance of photography and remembering. Jack's photos acted as an important historical document for the Chinese-Canadian presence in Brampton. And for sure, he would continue his journey. 2017 was the 150th anniversary of Canada. So one of the projects for the town was to dig up the stories and history and the heritage. And one of the things that they didn't know was the Asian presence in Brampton. It was mostly white Caucasian photographs and stories and everything else. Uh, modern day Brampton, it has a large South Asian population as well as a Black Canadian population. So it's very multicultural, but the stories are driven by white Caucasians. So the photographs that I brought with me to the Peel Art Museum and Archives, they were very glad to see me and to see the photographs. So they added some of my photographs into their exhibit which they held in, in their building during the, uh, uh, let's say, celebration of Canada's uh, 150th year. And uh, it, it's really nice to see that, uh, to be recognized, you know, like as a, in, in small towns, uh, Ontario, you don't see very many uh, recognition of Chinese restaurants. In the bigger cities like Toronto or Vancouver, Chinatown uh, has its own, what you call, uh, active stories and uh, fascination. It has this tourism uh, magnet, the attraction for people to come by. So in that sense, 
you know, it's one of those things that uh, changes the uh, the script a little bit. And I think that uh, if I didn't come into the building with my photographs, I don't think that uh, Brampton would remember the Asian presence. So I think it's one of those fate or, or <laughs> kind of luck or I call it the Forrest Gump movement. <laughs>